So, hello everyone. Welcome to the last yeah. final meeting of 2018, uh, December 13th of the Science Fiction Club. So, here we are in the cold of winter for most of us. <laughs> and we're going to talk about books that we, liked, that we liked or we didn't like or somewhere in between that we read yesterday or 50 years ago. So, uh, who wants to go first? Anyone can go first. All right, I'll go. Um, I read a, a book called Fool's Company. Let me see who, who wrote it here. I do. Let me see if I can find out. Why does that sound familiar? Are you thinking of the fantasy series, Anne? By, uh, I might be. No, there's a science fiction series called Fool's Company. Oh. It's about a, it's a commander of a starship or of a like a company in the military sense and he's got all these wacko Exactly, that's the one I'm reading. That's that's science fiction comedy. So oh yeah, that's right. It's kind of a whimsical yeah, thing. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a series or other books besides the one I just read apparently, right? Yeah, I think so. Okay. At any rate, uh, it, it's it, it's, it has very little to do with science fiction as such. It's more of a, of a humorous thing. It's the, the interesting thing about it, it has, this guy is a real rich multimillionaire, and he's in a legion just out of a quirk, and he gets, he gets court-martialed because of, of, of doing of, of bombing a, a position of an enemy that had already surrendered. And, and the interesting thing, the book is narrated by his butler, whose name is Cleaver, I think it is, and it makes me think of some of the books, some of the English books where they have butlers who, you know, who, who talk, this guy talks in the same way as, in, as, as an English butler. Please. And basically the idea as punishment, he's uh, given a, a, a group of totally unruly dropout type people and, and he's sent to a planet and, he, and, his, and his assignment is to try to form them into a cohesive group which he eventually does after going through a lot of different adventures and different character studies of the different groups. And at the, at the end, some aliens appear on the planet to defend uh, the settlers from any possible invasion. <clears throat> and um, basically, no one seems to know how to deal with it. And the interesting thing about this, this guy, the, the fool's guy, is that he, that he's able, he has real charm, and he's able to get, you know, overcome all the obstacles that were put in his place, and eventually he arranges a, a peace treaty with these aliens and finds them a place to settle, and the book ends very well. So that's basically it. Did you get the author? Did you uh, find yeah. it? Let me give it to you again. Hold on. Let me find it just a moment. I know I'm going to know it as soon as I hear it, but... Is it Robert Aspen? Robert Aspen. Robert, Robert yeah, you Aspen. got it. Yeah, Robert Aspen. That right. was it. Yeah, it sounded, I knew I'd know it as I heard it. Yeah, that's why it sounded familiar to me. I think I may have read it years ago. Or, you know, because it's, it's an older book. I mean, right. you know. But so. now, that's, is that part of a series, or is that just standalone? Or do you, could you tell? I couldn't tell. Uh -huh. but, but there might be, a, possibly, someone seen, I think someone mentioned the fact that there are other books of Bard that might be part of a series. I think it's part of a series. I think that's volume one. 
I wonder if the other ones are any better. Was that on Bard or? On Bard. Yeah, that's how, oh, yeah, right. You were playing it on your. Mm-hmm. Fool's Company. Okay. And Fool, by the way, is spelled kind of funny. T-H-U-L-E, I think, is right. In the court marching, when they find out he's one of the, he's the son of a, of one of the richest arm producers that supplies arms to the to the legion or to the navy to the military branch there, so they have to be careful as, as to what kind of court martial they're going to give them, which was sort of funny. Right. All right. Okay. Who goes next? Well, let me uh, tell you about Born of Legend by ooh. Sherilyn Kenyon. Did you hear me okay? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, you're okay. fine. Did your highlighting thing work? No, I am holding down my space bar, and that seems to shut the thing up. Oh, okay. Well, I'm <laughs> and, sorry. But in any case, um, I'll tell you about Born of Legend by Sherilyn Kenyon. This, I got it from Bookshare, and this on Goodreads is rated 4.55, an extremely high rating, with over 4,000 ratings. Wow. Personally, I think I'm going to give it about two stars. <laughs> I am currently reading it. And, well, let me tell you a bit about Sherilyn Kenyon. What she is known for is being a, um, a uh, what do you call it? There's a certain genre of romance, and now I forget, but it's basically a fantasy romance. Paranormal romance? Yeah, paranormal romance. And those things are basically low fantasy, that is, something like urban fantasy. And they usually have a vampire or a werewolf or something as a character or somebody has magical powers. But all of that is just like background. And the, um, main, the plot revolves around the romance. Well, it appears that this paranormal romance writer, Sherilyn Kenyon, decided to try her hand at science fiction. And I tell you the truth, it reads to me like exactly what you get when an author who knows absolutely nothing about science fiction tries to write science fiction. In <laughs> fact, I get the impression that everything she knows about science fiction she got from watching Star Trek episodes. And... It does not take place in the Star Trek universe, but it just seems so reminiscent of Star Trek. Let's see, there is there are two interstellar empires, humans and the Andarians. The Andarians seem to be Klingon analogs. They are don't quite look like Klingons though. They're big, they're hairy. They have fangs, but they are very militaristic-like, very harsh, even with each other. It seems like a whole entire society of sociopaths. <laughs> <laughs> and furthermore, by the way, they have um, an extra set of lungs that allows them to breathe fire, but the fire breathing only happens under very stressful conditions. But anyway, it also happens that these Andarians are 
sexually compatible and reproductively compatible with humans. Oh, um, great. Sounds like <laughs> Star Trek with the Vulcans again. And speaking of being sexually compatible with humans, there is one big thing that sounds like an incompatibility to me, and it would be very inconvenient, I would think. I told you they breathe fire when they are really stressed. Well, the main male character, it seems that fire shoots out of his mouth every time he has an orgasm. <laughs> <laughs> Any, anyway, anyway, these two empires, the human and the Andarian empires, are in contention with each other. They don't exactly have a war going on, but they definitely tend to be hostile toward each other. And they, um, they, um, well, they're just in competition, and they're very, they just don't like each other very well. But it so happens that you have. One character, the lead male character, is a half-human, half-Andarian. And he looks mostly like an Andarian. He had a brother. Oh, shades of what's his name? Y yeah. Spock. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Well, Spock or the... the um, oh, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he had a brother who looked more human. And his brother died... I think his brother might have been killed by the Andarians. Um, by the way, he is rejected by both the Andarians and the humans. In fact, there was a scene where his human grandfather was scornfully telling him, why is it that the only grandson I had who looked human had to die? But he grows up being neglected, abused, and absolutely scorned by his family, which is, by the way, the royal family of the Andarians. And he has very low self-esteem. He thinks that everyone hates him and so on. But somehow he ends up on a human space starship and a crew member, a human female, decides she likes him. She likes him real well, and she goes after him and to try to form a romantic relationship. He resists for a while since he has such low self-esteem. He cannot believe that anyone could possibly be attracted to him because all his life he has been um, looked down upon and deemed so unattractive and all that. Actually, among the Andarians, the only thing that looks human about him, it says that he has human eyes. It doesn't give any specifics on how human eyes and Dandarian eyes are any different from each other. But in any case, she likes him, and she goes for them, him and ends up in a romance with him. But of course, both the Andarians and the humans disapprove of this, so it is the classic forbidden, forbidden love um, plot. And just like these um, these uh, paranormal romances, all the science fiction elements are really background and setting. And the whole plot revolves around the romance. And I will say that I am currently reading it. I have not finished it. I think I'm 
something like about 70% of the way through. But I figured, well, I know enough about it now to tell you guys about it. And um, like I said, this the uh, Sherilyn Kenyon is first and foremost a romance writer, secondarily a paranormal romance writer. And, well, she tried her hand at science fiction, and it's just what you would expect from a writer who writes science fiction without knowing anything about science fiction. So I haven't finished it yet, and I haven't rated it on Goodreads, but I'm expecting to give it two stars. I don't really expect that anything will happen that will make me hate it so much that I'll end up giving it one star. But this, I really, the people, over 4,000 rate, 4,600 something ratings. And it gets, it has an average of 4.55. That means well over 50% of the ratings were a five. And I don't know how they do that, except I suppose all the readers were paranormal romance fans too, who also knew nothing about science fiction. That's my guess. So there's my book, Take It or Leave It. So how many how many partners did that Enduring guy burn up at Climax? <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that would be a very that would be, a, be interesting when you say breeds fire. You should work for a fire department. You'd probably be good there. Mm. Yeah. God. Well, my only comment is, can you spell cliche? Is the book on Bard also, or just on Bookshare? As far as I, well, I haven't really checked Bard for it, but as far as I know, it's only on Bookshare. Um, I really, you know, it. I do not am not one of those people. Who insists on only human red voice, uh, human red books? But I will have to admit that listening to a human red book is more pleasant. So I really should have checked Bard before I downloaded it from Bookshare. But actually, I never did, and I don't know if uh, Bard even has any Cheryl and Kenyon books. Hmm. Her name rings quite a bell. I'm willing to bet they do. Well, she is a very popular paranormal romance writer. Well, is her is her last name spelled like somebody that's from the country of Kenya? I think it is K E N Y O N. Y O N. Think, but if if you try to look at if you try to look it up and that doesn't work, then try spelling it a different way. Exactly. Sherilyn is spelled. Now, here I don't remember the exact spelling, spelling of Sherilyn either, but I think it starts out with C-H-E-R, not S-H-E-R. And how, okay. how did you find this book? What made you choose it? How did, how did I find it? Like I said, I was there. Well, Goodreads has these lists oh, okay. where people will list, um, I don't know, best science fiction books, best um, whatever books, any kind of list of books you want set up. And there is one list for books that have at least 100 ratings and are rated um, 4.5 or above. And so you would expect all of them on that list would be really good. And it was one of them on that list. 
It has a rating of 4.55 with over 4,000 ratings. So I decided that's basically why I decided to read it. And I looked, it, I looked it up on Bookshare and there it was. I forget when it was published. Well, it sounds like a perfectly awful book. <laughs> well, it may not be depending on how well it's it's narrated. You know, if you forget, if you don't put the emphasis on that, it doesn't have that much science fiction. That's from a strictly human interest, or you know, it, like, a, like, like, I, like yeah, the plot, like I said, mainly revolves around the romance. But think about this: in order for uh, you know, you can rate these books on Goodreads either one, two, three, four, or five stars. Five being the absolutely best, and in order to get a rating of 4.5, that means 50% of the people who rated it would have rated it five stars. To get 4.55, well, that's well over 50% of the people who rated it. Now, what can I say? You can't account for some people's tastes. Well, that's <laughs> Obviously, a lot of people really liked it. Or there's a bug in their rating system. Jeez. Oh, um, can I, may I go next? Right ahead. Well, sure. Okay. Well, I have discovered, and of course you guys probably know about him already. I have discovered Jack McDevitt's Angel, Engines of God series. Ah, yes. And I am thoroughly enjoying it. I have read, um, I haven't read the first book. Um, I did download it, but I haven't read the first book. I started with the second book, um, which is Deep Six. I read Deep Six, and I read Chindi, and I've just started uh, the the Omega one, um, and I'm going to go back eventually and read the, the first one, but uh, I am thoroughly enjoying this series. I think he writes well. I think... Um, things are plausible, at least in the main. Uh, all the solutions uh, that the main character comes up with to rescue people and, and rescue herself from these various crises that she gets into are, um, are scientifically sound. Um, and I just, I just am enjoying reading Jack McDevitt. I th I think he's wonderful. Yeah. Could you give us an idea of what the books are about? What they were talking well, about? okay. Um, the series is about a. Uh, well, she eventually becomes a starship captain, and she starts out as a, um, you know, a lieutenant or something. I, as I say, a I have pilot. Ah, yes. Thank you. And uh, her name is Priscilla Hutchins, and they call her Hutch. And uh, she ends up being a starship captain and running these various missions. Uh, in Deep Six, she is um, on a, a uh, world where it's going to be swallowed up by this gas giant, and she's supposed to... Um, examine all these ruins of this this uh, uh, former um, 
civilization. She works for uh, a scientific foundation, and their job is to search out odd phenomena, um, you know, uh, neutron stars and and um, stuff like that, and you know, research them. And so she's on deep six to research this archaeological site before it gets swallowed up. And um, uh, Chindi is the same sort of thing. It's just another progression in the in the series. Um, this time she's following a, um, a an odd type of robo ship that is very large and goes from civilization to civilization, collecting samples and watching the progress of the civilization. And it's it's quite interesting. And it's it's um, it's space opera in the sense that you get all the, the you know the crew of the ship and the various um, problems that the characters have and um, and then she always seems to get herself in a in a really tight spot before she can extricate herself and and uh, get back to the ship or whatever and uh, she does several uh, unusual you know sort of uh, what is what do they call that in in football a, a hail mary pass sort of thing where you know it's right on the edge of impossible and yeah. she always seems to pull it off um and it's it's good adventure it's good science fiction i mean everything is uh well researched and the science is accurate which i really like because i learned so much and um, that's what I've been reading. And you read it on Bard? I did. Okay. And it's Jack McDevitt, D-E-V-I-T-T. -T. Um, right. I'd like to go next because I read the first book. Oh, cool. That'll be oh, perfect. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I was looking around for something to read and that I thought I'd find interesting. And I did hit on the Engines of God series. I decided to start from the beginning. I, I should mention that I have finished the entire series, so I'm not going to say very much about the later books. But this one starts out and they have found in traveling through the foundation has found what they call, oh, not, mo I don't want to call them monoliths, but they're things that have been left behind by this civilization. Monument makers is what they call the civilization. They find one on one of the moons of Saturn. It's a image of what is assumed to be one of the monument makers and they go to the they then the next thing they find is this planet which humans are about to terraform and it has this 
uh, thing like a city on its moon. And as they go through these various civilizations and the various monuments, they find out that something destroys civilization about every 8,000 years. And they finally chase it down and to another planet, and it's the starting point of the entire Omega series. And I don't want to say any more about it. As usual, Priscilla does get into a situation or one of the principal characters, or look like is going to be one of the principal characters, is killed trying to, re to save an artifact from this planet after a human starts the terraforming process, uh, which involves melting the polar ice caps with nuclear explosions. He gets killed in that process. And then they go to these various other planets and a few more people get killed. Um, but it's the starting point for the whole Omega system. And it's an okay book. I I found it a little bit draggy at first, but that's because I've read the whole series not in order, so I know how it ends. And I'm not going to say any more than that. But I think he, Jack McDivitt is a good writer. I did enjoy the later books in the series, and he's got a another series involving a guy that recovers various archaeological artifacts and I don't remember the name of that series but I like those too so I found him a very good author I do recommend both series and they're both on Bard by the way oh great well um, since we were talking about monument makers and monoliths he didn't want to call them that but I um uh, Reread. I actually read a couple of books, a few books in the last couple of months, but they're not on Bookshare yet, so I can't talk really about them much um, or at all. But I did read 2001 the other day, and uh, I read a different narration than the one I had originally read. There's a newer narration with uh, an introduction by Arthur C. Clarke talking about the movie and the book and how they were kind of written concurrently and how he and Stanley Kubrick met and all that kind of stuff. And then there's the foreword to the original book. And then there's the, well, I don't know how many of you guys need to know how, what the plot were, what the plot is, but basically it's uh, these monoliths. They are called monoliths. Um, and they are left by aliens, and they actually, originally, the book starts out three million years ago, and there's this tribe in uh, Africa somewhere, and the monolith comes down, and it puts them through their, it, it examines them and stimulates them in certain ways to, it kind of pushes them along a little bit to advance. It tests them out and see what they can do, and then it alters their brains a little bit and then uh it leaves earth and then of course the book shifts to 2001 and they find one of these monoliths on the moon and it's buried under 30 feet of uh lunar dust regolith 
So they know it was deliberately buried. Um, so they dig it out, and once it, the sunlight hits it, it knows that it's been dug out, and it sends a signal out uh, through the solar system and out into the galaxy. And so then the book shifts to the spacecraft that was launched, and this is where most people remember Hal is on it, and David Bowman and Frank Poole are the two astronauts, and Hal, of course, the computer, which was not named after displacing IBM by three letters. Clark wants to emphasize that at the beginning of the book. And uh, you can see the actual origin of the name in Chapter 16. It's heuristic algorithm or something like that. Anyway, um, and, of course, the he talks a little bit about the difference between the movie and the book. The movie stops at Jupiter because it was just simpler for the plot of the movie. But the actual book, uh, they go to Saturn, and they find the moon of Saturn, Iapetus, and another monolith is there. But before that time, Hal uh, has his breakdown because he's conflicted because he's supposed to keep this mission a secret from the crew, but at the same time, he's supposed to help them, and his programming just can't deal with this conflict, so he actually kills, well, he creates these imaginary faults in the communication system, and one of the guys has to go out and fix it, and they start getting suspicious because they test the first communications module that keeps the antenna aimed at Earth in the lab, and nothing's wrong with it, and then uh, a little bit later, he comes out and says, well, this next one is looks like it's going to be going bad in 24 hours. And so the guy goes out to fix that, and his uh, extravehicular, his, you know, his pod uh, takes off and crushes him. And then it takes off and heads out into space with him in tow. So then Bowman, who's the guy that's left, unplugs Hal's higher functions. He doesn't disable them altogether because he's too intertwined with the, with the ship, but he, he uh, unplugs all the modules that are his higher functions, his intelligence, his ability to talk and everything. And then he gets to Saturn and finds another Stargate there. And that's really near the end of the book, and that's when the fun really begins for people who like really uh, far out stuff, because Bowman goes into the pod and he decides to land on Iapetus because he says, I've come all these billion miles, I'm not going to stop at the last 60, 60 minutes, he's 60 miles above in orbit. So he takes the pod down and attempts to land on top of the monolith, but the monolith opens the stargate at that point, and he gets sent off to his adventures, which is really uh, near the end of the book. And uh, for anybody who hasn't read it, I don't know if I'm going to spoil it, but... I mean, it is a classic, so most of you probably have. But I enjoyed it a great deal. I have forgotten quite a bit of it. It's been like, I don't know, 35 or I don't know how many years since I've read it. But I enjoyed it quite a bit. Was the movie based on, on that book? Well, they were written concurrently, uh, Clark says. It was not technically based on the book. The novel was being written while the movie was being written. Only the, the movie did actually come out first a little bit before the book. So, but the book was being written so they could have a script for the movie and then the movie script and then the novel was kind of adapted a little bit and they both worked on the story. Um, did, Arthur C. Thought, did Arthur C. Clarke write the screenplay for the movie or somebody else write it? Um, 
they I think he and Kubrick wrote it together. He didn't say, okay. uh, but I think he and Kubrick wrote it together based on the novel because they had to figure out what kinds of things would work. And Kubrick, Kubrick worked quite a, mostly on the script, from what I understand. But he okay. and Clark worked closely together on the novel. Clark, you know, Kubrick read the novel and, you know, he adapted some things from it to make the movie, as I said, a little more streamlined. And, of course, uh, he and he and Clark collaborated on a lot of the ideas. You know, Kubrick told him kind of what he wanted. He wanted a grand kind of movie, you know, plot with some grandeur in it. And there's quite a bit of that, especially near the end when Bowman, you know, goes to the other, you know, uh, through the Stargate and and uh, doesn't really meet the aliens so much, but he gets changed by them, you might say. There are some odd narration problems with this book, though. This is a book that was read by Michael Kramer, and now the first one might be a misprint. I didn't have a chance to go to Bookshare today to check. I just finished it yesterday, and I we were busy today, and but he says in the beginning, he told Kubrick, because originally Kubrick came with him with another an idea from another writer, and he said, well, you know, I I gave him the idea that I, you know, that I do not work from other people's ideas. And he said, see Rama ill for reasons why I changed that policy. Now, we all know Rama ill was supposed to be Rama three. Um and then, of course, throughout the book, he doesn't say Iapetus, he says Japetus for some reason. And I don't know if he's confusing an I with a J or if there's a misprint all through that book or, or what. But there is no moon of Saturn called Japetus. It is Iapetus. Um, and it comes kind of jarring to keep hearing it because it was said, you know, quite a few times in the last, you know, third of the book. So, um, anyway, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, I'm going to read 2010. I'm not sure I'm going to read all of them because they kind of go down a little bit. Each one is not quite as good as the previous one from my experience. Um, 2010 is pretty good, and 2061 is okay, and I thought 3001 was not really very good. So, I don't know how far I'll get, but I'll probably read 2010 anyway. Um so uh, there you go. Somebody read Clark last month, and I read Clark this month. So we'll see what happens in January. Well, I'll, yeah, I I'll think go. It was me, actually. Yeah, it was you. Yep. Well, I'll go next, and I apologize. My book's not science fiction. I, I, I'm still kind of learning the genre. And uh, Sherry Wells recommended a couple of things to me. And one of which was uh, Dean Koontz's Prodigal Son, which is kind of a Frankenstein. So I guess it's probably more appropriately classified as Gothic horror, but it's it's set in current day times. And uh, mm. uh, and you know, I, I thought, well, you know, it, it, it's fairly short. It sounds pretty interesting. It's set in New Orleans. I like New Orleans, and uh, but it's 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 the same old the, the same old story. There's a I guess the monster that that Victor Frankenstein created originally is uh, he's got a name in this, and it's Duke Malian, I think is his name. I'm not sure how it's spelled, but he's actually turned into a good guy 
So I, I guess he's lived a couple hundred years, and he's 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 kind of like you know one of the best characters in the book, I think, because he's 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 got some of these. I guess would best be referred to as supernatural abilities, mm. but uh, he, he's actually figured that that killing and stuff, I guess, is not what it's all cracked up to be. And he, he's you know he's he's at a monastery at the very beginning of the book, and and you know he. He, I always thought know. the monster got a bad rap. Anyway, my sympathies were with him in the book. Anyway, well, yeah, there, there you <laughs> to go. Begin with. So, 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 but so anyway, right, right, right. Go ahead. I didn't. But, <laughs> no, I, I don't disagree with you. But uh, uh, the real monster in this book is this, this, this Victor Helios. He's taken a new last name, but he's settled in New Orleans, and he's 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 apparently super rich and stuff, and he's. He's trying to create a race of these these creatures to like take over the world. Oh, that's always and, fun. And, and apparently, he's got like a couple of thousand of them at this point. Oh, you know, I mean, we're, we're introduced. I mean, the story is set around like a murder mystery. These people are dying, and you, you, you think that it's well. I don't, I don't want to say too much, but it, it's making it sound like uh, it, it's one of these creatures that that's doing it but but there's really uh, you know i mean it, it's really kind of kind of a copycat thing going you know the the creatures are are, are, are kind of like kind of like some of the robot stuff and and uh asimov's robot rules i mean the way he creates these creatures first and foremost that they're not allowed to harm the big boss guy, Victor, you know, he, he's like a guy to them. They can't do that. And, and they're forbidden from killing themselves. So they've got these rules that are built into them. But, uh, the, the story kind of, kind of, you know, revolves around that. And, and, and the cops, the main cop is a, is a female named Carson O'Connor. And I, I, I she was a good character. I mean, I, I liked her. And then she's got a, a partner named Michael Madison. There's a lot of humor between the two of them that, that was that was well done, I thought. But like, like I say, little if any science fiction in it, I guess, for, for you purists. I'm sorry about that, but I, I'm in so many book clubs. That, you know, by the time I get into one of these things or read, I kind of have to talk about what I've read. And uh, but uh, th this was a pretty certain. I think I think there's there may be up to five in the series, but, but this oh, wow. first one, the first one's called Prodigal Son. And like I said, they're all written by Dean Koontz, and I, I expect they're all on Bard. The one I read was on Bard, and uh, I mean, and, and it was inter entertaining. But uh, that's really all I got to say about the book. But I do have a question since Roger was talking about Goodreads, and and I know just because something is classified as, as science fiction on Goodreads does not make it so. But they came out with their Goodreads Choice Awards, and I've been kind of reading through some of those categorizations and I think the one that got the the science fiction good Goodreads Choice Award was by an author named Victoria Schwab and it's called Vengeful. Has anybody ever read her? And is that really science fiction or not? Like I don't know. I looked at the Goodreads Choice Awards and but I can't remember what was on them now. But by yeah. the way, the, the one you're telling me about, one you're telling us about it sounds pretty much like science fiction to me, except you did say something there about somebody with supernatural powers. Is that correct? Well, you know, maybe superhuman would be. I mean, these monsters, these monsters are the way they're constructed. They've got extra thick skulls and stuff for one. So, you know, 
a shot to the head is probably not going to do them as much damage as, uh, as to a human and stuff. And I, I, they're really fast. I mean, they, they can move really quickly. And I'm not sure if that's because of their musculature and stuff like that. So supernatural, supernatural may have been a, been a misclassification. Well, it sounds like science fiction to me. I don't know if it's really good science fiction or not, but let me, let me give you, try to give you a quick lesson on the difference between science fiction and fantasy. Um, they are both speculative fiction, and that means that there is the implicit que question of what if, and then after the if follows a fantastic supposition, and the answer, at least one answer to the question of what if, is the story itself. But um, they don't, the word science isn't in science fiction for nothing. Science is the study of reality. So if it is a science fiction story, the fantastic supposition, and by the way, the fantastic supposition is something that no one has ever actually experienced in all history. But if it is science fiction, it is assumed within the context of the story to be a manifestation of reality. While if it is fantasy, the fantastic supposition is assumed within the context of the story to be a manifestation of the supernatural. So oh, okay. it sounds like you are describing that even as fantastic as the suppositions are, that it's assumed to be a manifestation of reality rather than supernatural. Well, yeah, provided you, you, you take a different parts of a creature and cr create something new out of it, I guess. Yeah, that's a... Well, the original uh, Frankenstein was science fiction. It was considered science fiction. It's still well, there. You well, there you go. It, well, I mean, this, was, is basically, this is basically the same thing, just updated, I guess, for our newer times. It, so, was, yeah. it was written before the science fiction genre was invented, but in retrospect, it fits all, all, all the requirements to be science fiction. Of course, also in retrospect, we know that a corpse could not possibly be reanimated the way it was described in that book. But in the time of Mary Shelley, that was not known. Right. So, yeah. So it does. Okay. It does qualify as science fiction. Okay. Well, who's considered like the? I mean, is there is there a particular author that's considered the uh, the, the the founder of science fiction or or, or not? Somebody's got that. Line. Um. Let's put it Jules this way. Jules Verne and, what's his name, Hugo somebody. Gernsback. Hugo Gernsback. Gernsback. Okay. It's like this. In 1926, Hugo Gernsback was, a, was a, an electronics buff. Electricity was still kind of new, and there were all kinds of inventions, electrical inventions being made. And he was into the science and electronic stuff, and he wanted to promote it. So he came up with a gimmick. That is, um, he asked authors to, he started a new magazine, and he asked authors to contribute uh, stories that uh, promoted science and especially electrical invention, as he called it. And that's why the early science fiction was real gimmicky. And that started the science fiction genre. Genre itself started with the pulp magazines, and they go back to the 19th century, and, you know, they just classified according to what kind of stories they published. There's westerns, and there's mysteries, and so on. But 
science fiction was kind of a latecomer to it. Anything before 1926 would be classified as science fiction only in retrospect. Uh, Jules Byrne, Verne did not know he was writing science fiction, for example. He called it scientific romances, but that was descriptive rather than categorical. And H.G. Wells didn't know he was writing science fiction. Uh, it really became categorical starting in 1926. Okay, good. Thanks, Thanks for the lesson. David. I it. Hello. I... Um Unfortunately, have not quite finished my book. It's Kim Stanley Robinson's new book, Red Moon, which has nothing to do with his Red Mars trilogy. You know, Red oh, just to be confusing. Yes, Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars. I never read those. Um, we we discussed his 2040 last year, 2140, which I think most of us rather liked. 2312. Yeah, we did do that one. We did that one too, which some yeah. of us liked more than others. I remember. Yeah. I like. One thing though that he does that other people sometimes don't, his info dumps. I like being lectured at in a novel. It it makes it go down easier than it would if, if it were just a straightforward nonfiction. Sometimes these info dumps put it, you know, studied throughout the plot, help the plot. Just they give you something more to think about and help you understand. In this one, <clears throat> what we're seeing is the year is 2040, and China. Is do dominates the colonization of the moon. They have the entire. I'm trying to think. They have the entire. Um, if I'm not mistaken, the entire southern hemisphere of the moon. It's one of the two hemispheres they have totally developed. And in this book, Fred Fredericks is going taking a ship to the moon to deliver a quantum device. It's some kind of telephone to a Chinese official. He, he um, meets the official, shakes hands, and they both fall down. The official dies, and he's very sick. The Chinese think he's tried to kill one of them, and so they arrest him. They're going to send him back to China, to China, and along with him is the daughter of the Chinese finance minister who's been up on the moon running around and she goes with him and this a whole the book is roughly 16 and a half hours long and i've read about 13 hours and it's they run back and forth to the moon they're trying to avoid different factions in china because china's about to have a government change and so i'm not quite sure why all of this is happening i'm a little bit disappointed here because i think this book is a little longer than it needs to be and it's certainly not this author's best work kirkus reviews reviewed it by saying you know it was good that it was more a political novel than a science fiction one and i agree because there is some science fiction in that they're on the moon and they go back and forth and it's easy to do they have rockets and different um transport and it's no big thing to go to the moon but it's more political in what it's talking about which is relations with china and the u.s um he did some of that in 2140 as well but this book is set in the year 2047 i checked kirkus review which as i said liked the book they come they said similar books and i'm not sure why they thought this but andy weir's artemis and greg bear's moving mars were considered similar though i'm not sure why this was on board it's only it was only recently put on board actually and the book itself came out in october so we're reading a book very currently you know i'm still having to adjust to being able to read books 
sometimes on board, sometimes on move share, uh, just about when they come out so that you're very current. Yeah, I'm getting spoiled. Yeah, very. <laughs> and that was basically, I'll have to finish the book to see if I'm going to like it. 2140, that was the one about climate change, wasn't right. it? Right. Oh, where New York was flooded. Right. And yeah, that was kind of, and it had several different points of view, different mm -hmm. narrative voices all going at the same time. And that was kind of interesting. He's done other stuff. The Book of Rice and Salt, I think, is tells the story. What if the Chinese and the Muslims had um, been able to hold the place in our world that Western Europe and the Western culture did? And it's sort well, of that's a good. That's an interesting question because it was. It's been a mystery, and I haven't heard any solutions yet. Why the Chinese didn't keep? They sent out exploratory ships in the in, early 1400s. Yeah, and they just quit. They had it in their hands, and they just dropped it for some reason. And I've never heard an answer to that question, but they could have had it. And that's that's why it might be an interesting story to see what if they had, because they had all the ingredients. You know, they were an inventive culture. They were exploring the continents, you know, before Columbus. They were, you know, they had printing and gunpowder, and even though they were using it for recreational purposes, but they could have. You know, they were vibrant, they were, and the Muslim world was, well, the Muslim world by then was kind of shattered because of the cons, but anyway, the Chinese uh, just quit. Anyway, I think that's everybody, isn't it? I think, I think so. so. I want to ask a question. Would, would, should I continue when I have time to try to look for new books on Bard and put them on the list? Oh, yes, because... Because, uh, you know, nobody's doing that anymore. I mean, I do it if I see a book I really like, but I haven't really made a strong effort to do it in a, on a consistent basis every time I see a new book. So if you're, if you're happy and willing to do it, then by all means, okay. yeah. that would be fine. Any word about Mary yet? Her number is disconnected. Um, oh, and I heard word from someone else. Uh, well, Anne, you can talk about that if you wish. Well, I happened to see a message from uh, an acquaintance of mine on the net, and she happened to mention that her friend Mary Emerson had died, and um, you know, I I didn't get a chance to check it out, and I wrote to uh, to to uh, Evan, and I asked him to check it out because you know I don't have her number and I don't. You know, I didn't know her well, you know, and I also don't know this other lady too well. I mean, I know her, but, um, you know, because I didn't know if it was our Mary or some other Mary Emerson, because it's not a, a an unusual name. So, what, you heard um, this on a list you were on? Yeah. If her number is disconnected, that means she's probably disconnected. Right. I, I just tried it yesterday, and um, and I could have sworn somebody here last meeting said that they had tried to call her. Yes, Sherry uh, did. Sherry and Sherry I did. did. Her number's been disconnected for a little while then. Right. Sherry uh, and I spoke to her once, but it was like a month and a half ago, and then Sherry tried again. And we both tried again, and it rang and rang, and then Sherry told me she tried later, and it, she said it was disconnected. I think uh, it's pretty safe to assume that uh, she passed away. Oh, uh, I think so. the cancer was pretty well advanced before it was detected. Uh, but by the time it was detected, you know, she was, she told us, you know, she was falling down and 
her energy levels were really low, and I think it was pretty well advanced by then. Uh, unfortunately, I really, you know, maybe I was in denial partly, but I was not expecting things to happen so quickly. Yeah. So it's really sad, though. She was quite a vibrant, you know, she really loved science fiction. She loved to come to these meetings. She loved to talk about books. She had very, she was very enthusiastic about, you know, what she liked and, you know, the things she loved to read and, you know, so it was it was a very very tragic thing to, you know, for her to disappear. By the way, Evan, is there any reason why Lucy hasn't been at our meetings recently? Lelia? No, no, your wife. Your wife. Oh, Lucy, she um, she um, hasn't been. She's not happy with the forum. But she 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 wants to. She likes to discuss a book in depth. I do too. Maybe we should consider maybe occasionally. Um, she thinks that doing this this way is fun, but it's 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 kind of like you can't really get into a, delve into maybe, a book. Oh, maybe we should alternate. Well, I don't know. We can talk about it. Uh, I think there are people who like this forum and you know who like it quite a lot. I I've liked both forums. Um, I mean, we can we can talk about it on the list. Um, if I can find a few new ones that no one's read, then of course you might have read read them. Even if they were put on board, doesn't mean that they, you know. Because I know there are people who have come who didn't used to come because they uh, didn't like the old well, having to read an assigned book, so to speak. Well, the the thing is that I belong to mysteries because I'm running it, and then I have also joined the fantasy and the science fiction group and the only reason I can do that is because I can read what books I want and mm -hmm. or I right. can talk about books I've read previously and that's why I like it because I <laughs> if you didn't read anything this month you're not stuck yeah, right yeah, but... yeah it's it's purely selfish and you can tell Lissy I said that yeah let yeah. me point but, out let me point out that this time I told you about a book I'm currently reading and haven't even finished. But in other months, I have told you about, well, some books that I might have read years ago that I happen to remember. And this thing about being expected to have a certain book read in one month, that it's a little harder. Because, yeah. Um, well, it is kind of like having a school assignment for one thing, but for another thing, good grief, I have so many things going on in my life that I can't guarantee getting one finished, and any particular one finished, and it is handy to go back to books that I've read in the past and tell you about that. Right. And actually, my well, Marshall? My problem is finding something that I feel is worth finishing. You know, I've started many books, and I just can't can't finish them. They don't grab me. You know, I think science fiction has been going downhill. I used to really enjoy analog, but I can't even get into that anymore. Hmm. And I, it's I think when they started teaching science fiction as a writing thing. I think they kind of screwed it up. Well, one thing I noticed, and I'm going to point it out, because this is one thing that you'll notice if you read, like when I read 2001 just the other day, I was thinking to myself, nobody's got personal trauma here. Nobody's got issues with their childhood. Nobody's got, 
you know, all the even the short stories now, a lot of them that you read with characters in them, they've got problems. You know what I mean? It's called character. I think that's what people think of as character development. Um, this book was just about an adventure, about investigating an alien artifact and what would happen. There was no, you know, you could say there's no character development if you like. I mean, the characters were not, you know, they didn't have deep psychological histories or anything. But, you know, that kind of stuff used to be popular. Now every character has to have, you know, a, 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 you know, a psychological profile and probably an issue or two. You know, that's just the way I, it seems like newer SF works now. It's like the, the comic books, the Stan Lee, you know, Spider-Man always having his doubts about what he did and, you know, all his personal problems. Right. The other problem I have with a lot of science fiction is it takes place in a universe where there's been an apocalypse of some kind. Yeah, and I, I don't want to hear about apocalypses. I think there's a, a fair probability that within the next couple of hundred years, we're going to have a real apocalypse when, you, when and if Yellowstone blows. Um, and I just, I'm tired of reading about apocalypses, and the, even the one, and they usually aren't very positive. You know, I, I like science fiction that's hopeful. Well, I think it's science. easier. I think it's easier to write apocalyptic science fiction. Yeah, well, it may be. That's but one reason I, I, think I don't so much like to read not. them. Yeah, I'm like, and I think, I'm like in fact, I think, I think, uh, oh, I can't remember the name of the guy. He he did an article in this month in this period's analog. Uh, he says it's all apocalyptic. You know, he's basically kind of saying what I'm saying. Pete, there's no hope in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that can that can be kind of self fulfilling, you know, to some extent too. Yeah, I'm not I'm not a fan of dystopian stuff, whether it's whether it's science fiction or not, because I'm like Marshall. Man, there's enough there's enough bad crap going on in the world anyway without having to read about it too. Well, you know, the old ones. The 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 example he used was oh a meteor meteoritic. I can't say the word meteorite impact. Mm -hmm. And even was, though there was, was a meteorite not? impact, there was still positive stuff. People were coping with it, solving problems, you know, moving on. And they just seemed to be stuck in this um, negative universe. Yeah. And yeah. I don't really want to watch it or read it anymore. Yeah. Well, I know what you mean. I agree. So, I guess we should close up here. It's 10.07 Eastern Time. And so, I will just mention before the recording goes off that the next Science Fiction Club meeting will be on January 10th, 2019. There, Roger. I got it. <laughs>